Hello, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us for our continuing series, The Drive to Level 5. This is the podcast series going on throughout the summer to highlight the Drive World Expo and Conference taking place in Santa Clara, California, August 27th and 29th. Many of you have sent in comments and questions regarding these podcasts. Thank you very much for doing that. Keep it coming because it's your comments and questions that help us develop better and better content going forward. Today, we are going to be talking with Sam Abul Samid from Navigant Research. Sam is the principal research analyst at Navigant, and he's going to share some of his comments today about the unlikely partnerships that need to take place in the transportation industry as autonomous technologies become more widespread. And we're also going to talk about what is and what is not realistic expectations on the drive to level five. Sam, thanks very much for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here with you, Jack. Okay. Um, Sam, I thought maybe a good place to start before we get into your talks and the, uh, and the conference itself. LinkedIn says you are the principal research analyst at uh, Navigant and that you've been doing that for about five years. Can you take just a minute or so, tell us about Navigant, what does the company do, and just for the familiarity of our listeners, what do you do there? What is a principal research analyst? Sure. So uh, just to be clear, I am not the, but rather a uh, principal analyst at Navigant, okay. <laughs> uh, one, of, one, of, one of several. Um, and uh, Navigant Research is the market research arm of Navigant Consulting's energy practice. Uh, we started about 10 years ago, uh, originally as Pike Research, um, based out of Boulder, Colorado, um, focused on clean energy technologies, and we were acquired by Navigant Consulting's energy practice in 20, uh, 2012. Um, and became Navigant Research. And so we cover quite, quite a broad range of areas um, related to clean energy. Uh, you know, so this includes uh, work that we do with utilities, smart cities, uh, buildings, IoT, and, of course, transportation, which is my area. Um, and you know, a lot of our, our work in the transportation sector revolves around vehicle electrification and uh, automated driving, mobility services, uh, connected uh, connected vehicles, and uh, I lead our mobility research service, um, which includes automated and connected vehicles, mobility services, and uh, advanced, some advanced propulsion work. Um, and so we, we do market sizing, market analysis of technologies and, and how uh, and do forecasting of how we think the technologies are going to evolve in the, the marketplace over usually a 10, 15, 20-year period. Um, and uh, yeah, and and so we um, you know we work uh, with a wide variety of companies. We sell uh, syndicated research reports that anybody can can buy, um, and then for customers that are looking for a more uh, in-depth look at a specific area, um, you know, a deeper dive, uh, we also do custom research projects for those. And we also work with our our consulting side of the business. Uh, you know, uh, to to help companies uh, understand the marketplace and and uh, help them develop their strategies for how they're going to move forward. Okay, well, it sounds like a, not only a wide net but a uh, a comprehensive net. It's got width and and depth. It sounds it sounds like to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and because you know, a, lo- a lot of this stuff is getting more and more interconnected and interdependent. Uh, you know, things like. Uh, smart cities and uh, and IoT and and 
automated vehicles and mobility services are, are no longer siloed. They, you know, there's a lot of uh, dependence between those, uh, you know, getting information back and forth to the cloud and, and sharing, you know, information from sensors in, in buildings and on street sides and on vehicles and, and you know, on people. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of pieces that have to fit together to make this all work properly things have to start to dovetail that maybe never had to dovetail before. And that's actually why the, the topic of your talk really caught my attention. Something I think we, and I'm including myself in the we, I think we are bad at in the tech sector is we get excited about the technology and what it can do and advances and so on. Um, and I get excited about it as well. My background is actually 3D printing focused, and I get excited about the technologies. But I think I think in many occasions we could do a better job of talking about the impact on a particular industry or industries, the job market, what job skills might go up in demand, what job skills might decrease in demand. And I'm going to take a time out here because I, I want to read – the description of your presentation, and for the benefit of our listeners, Sam will be giving this talk Wednesday, August 28th at 4.15. And Sam, it says here, the transportation industry is a crucial component of the modern economy, and it faces the greatest existential threats in its history over the next decade. Between automation and electrification, the industry has collectively spent tens of billions of dollars in incremental R&D investment over the past decade with no immediate prospect of making it back. The technical, regulatory, and commercial challenges of deploying automation are increasingly forcing long-time, and this is the part that really caught my attention, long-time rivals to partner up in the hopes of sharing the costs until they can start to recover their investment. I'll tell you, Sam, when I read that, I said, hallelujah, someone's going to get up and talk, not about the bits and the bytes and the processing speeds, but what does this mean to the economy as a whole? So could you, could you tell us a little bit about those longtime rivals that uh, are going to have to start looking for ways to work together? Who, who, you, who do you think are going to have to start teaming up that – Probably never had to before, and probably never even thought about it before. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that they've never thought about it before. I mean, you know, actually, you know, partnerships certainly among uh, automakers, um, you know, are not an entirely new thing. But I think what's what's different now is the the scale of some of these partnerships, um, you know, and the, and the amount of money that's being spent. Um, you know, as an example of what's going on right now, just about a week and a half ago. Uh, you know, we had a big announcement in New York uh, with Ford and Volkswagen that they are partnering up. Uh, Volkswagen is is investing in uh, Argo AI, which is a startup that Ford uh, helped fund uh, in, in early 2017 that is developing the automated driving stack for Ford's future automated vehicles. And Volkswagen has now decided to invest in Argo and also use that same stack. Um, and the, the three companies are, are going to be collaborating together on the development of this AV system. Um, you know, a, another example along the same lines is Honda and uh, GM Cruise. And also uh, SoftBank is an investor in Cruise Automation, which GM acquired in 2016. Um, you know, SoftBank's Vision Fund has been 
you know, it's a $100 billion venture capital fund that has been investing in dozens, uh, probably hundreds at this point, of companies um, that mo- most, many of which, if not most of which, are involved in some way in the mobility space, whether it's as mobility service providers or automated driving uh, technology developers or sensor developers. Um, you know, and they, you know, they've invested a uh, couple of billion dollars into GM Crews. Honda's put money in there, and Honda and GM are working together uh, to develop an automated vehicle. So, you know, and we're seeing the same sort of thing happening on the electrification side, where um, you know companies are getting together because the, you know, what we're what we're coming to the realization that the industry is coming to is that it's going to take significantly longer to get to. Um, significant, you know, major volumes of automated vehicles deployed uh, on the roads, uh, just as we've seen with electric vehicles over the past decade, you know, the, the rate of adoption is going to be much slower than they had thought maybe two or three years ago, and in some cases even as recently as a year ago. Uh, and in order to, um, you know, because the, the, the rate at which money has to be invested on developing the technology is not slowing down, um, the, the rate at which revenues are going to come in is definitely slower than they thought. So they're, okay. they're collaborating to get more scale. Now, uh, let's just uh, hang on here with the Ford VW and the GM Honda collaborations. Okay, we, we, we kind of think of automakers as being rivals. Now those companies are going to collaborate on, this, uh, auton- on these autonomous initiatives. Are there, are there examples of organizations – in different industries, I mean, Ford, VW, GM, Honda, they are all car companies. Are there examples of companies in different industries that you wouldn't think of as being so collaborative um, that in this case, it may be rivals in some ways, that you're going to think now, yeah, uh, to recoup some of that R&D investment and push this forward, they're going to have to start to work together. Yeah, I mean, certainly, um, you know, it just looking across the portfolio of SoftBank's investment uh, right. in, investment portfolio, you know that's you know there's a, a huge number of companies in there, many you know most of which are are startups uh, to some degree or another, um, you know and a lot of these are technology companies. They're focused entirely on software, you know. Or you know another uh, example would be Waymo. You know Waymo is a company that you know sprang up out of. Uh, the Google X Labs. It started off as the, the Google self-driving car project 10 years ago. Uh, you know, this is a company that, you know, started off as a search engine, you know, and then became an advertising company and, you know, is now also a media company. And, you know, they, they, they're getting into mobility, into the mobility space. Okay. And they are right. working with, uh, with Fiat Chrysler and with Jaguar Land Rover uh, to get vehicles, you know, to bring vehicle, you know, to, to provide them with vehicle platforms on which they can deploy their automated driving technology. Uh, you know, Uber, Uber is another one. You know, this is a company that started off as a, as a software company, you know, doing a software platform to enable, um, you know, people to, to hail a ride, you know, basically a, a modern taxi service. Um, you know, and they are collaborating with Toyota now and, and with Volvo for, you know, for a vehicle platform, eventually for their own vehicles, but they're also working with Toyota. Um, so, you know, it's between the, the technology industry and, and the, um, you know, the auto industry is where we're seeing the biggest collaborations, but also, uh, you know, in, in the case of, um, you know, some of the, you know, uh, mapping is a, is a great example. 
Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, a startup called Usher that, um, you know, de- developed the high-definition maps that GM uses for its Super Cruise uh, partially automated driving system. Uh, and Usher uh, evolved out of another company that was doing aerial mapping, uh, you know, for utilities and, and for other, other types of applications, uh, you know, using high-definition LiDAR sensors and, 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 and other sensors to do aerial high-definition mapping, and they, they evolved that technology to doing ground-level high-definition maps that are used by GM to geofence its uh, semi-automated driving system. The, um, what's so fascinating about these sorts of things, and it's certainly not unique to this age of the uh, developing autonomous vehicle. We've seen this throughout the history of technology. Someone does one thing here, and it creates this ripple effect that starts to interact with um, other ways of living, other ways of working. But here, here to listening to everything you're saying about the different companies and their backgrounds, their specialties, this collaborative ripple effect is, is going to take place on an enormous scale. It is what it really sounds like, at least to the to the person in the distant back row like myself, who I candidly admit does not know a lot about autonomous vehicles. As these companies come together, the scope and scale of this, getting back to your tens of billions of dollars comment in your talk description, is really going to be mammoth. I mean, this is just this is just huge. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely the case, and you know, as I said, you know, the the auto industry has always been a a capital-intensive industry. It's always, you know, cost a lot of money to develop high-volume uh, vehicles and and the manufacturing facilities for them. And you know, these tens of billions of dollars that we're talking about here is incremental on top of that. You know, they still have to develop the base vehicle that this technology right. is going to go into. And on top of that, you're developing a whole new technology that you're going to stuff into those vehicles and try to make it work, and a services platform that you you're going to try to make work. And, you know, also the electrification side of this, you know, um, electrification is a key component, a key enabler for automated driving because the, the automated driving systems consume a, quite a bit of electrical power. And so you, you really need uh, electrified uh, powertrains in order to get sufficient electricity to, to power all these other systems. Um, and, and, you know, plus we've got regulatory mandates that are pushing the industry towards uh, more auto, you know, or t- towards more electrification. You know, increasingly, you know, we're seeing cities around the world, you know, especially in Europe, uh, that you know want to ban internal combustion engine cars from their uh, from their their city centers. You know, and have only electric vehicles in there. Places like Paris and London. Uh, you know, and so all of these pieces, all of these things are coming together. You know, forcing the issue uh, in you know what's going to be a relatively short span of time. And you know, there what we haven't the one thing we haven't seen so far uh, for a lot of this technology is a consumer pull for the technology. There's a lot of there's a lot of things pushing the technology out there, but not you know whether it's regulations or market forces, but not a lot of consumer pull for any of this stuff. And so you know, the manufacturers have to find a way to do it as economically as possible so they don't lose too much money. Right. <laughs> I, you said a couple of things there I want to circle back to, especially about the regulatory environment. But um, you're, we're talking here about auto manufacturers, car manufacturers, and names that are identified with the, the consumer vehicle. 
but transportation industry also means it means trucks, it means buses, uh-huh. it means trains. Um, and I guess if you want to get really broad, it could also mean ships and planes, but I don't think we're talking about either of those at the uh, Drive World Conference. But um, where all the attention is about the self-driving car. Am I right or am I wrong in thinking that in a decade, more or less, we'll see self-driving 18-wheelers going up and down. Uh, the, the major highway I live near here in Connecticut is 95. Um, where, where do you think we are in terms of that evolution, if at all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely you know, one of the many areas that companies are working on. There's a number of companies uh, like Too Simple, Starsky Robotics, and uh, you know, Daimler Trucks and, and Volvo Group. Uh, they're all working on automated uh, heavy-duty vehicles. Um, you know, one of the one of the issues that the trucking industry has has been talking a lot about in recent years is a shortage of truck drivers going forward. You know, the, the average age of truck drivers is is getting older. It's it's a it's a challenging job for especially long haul trucking. It's it's a it's a hard job, and you know there there have been new regulations in recent years that limit the amount of hours a day that uh, drivers, you know, the, the drivers can be on the road, and so uh, you know they're they're looking for solutions to get around this. You know, both you know from uh, uh, you know trying to get enough, uh, you know, trying to overcome the problem of not enough people that actually want to do this job, but also to try to make it safer. Uh, you know, safety right. is, a, is a real issue uh, with these vehicles, and so I think you know in the you know towards the you know the latter half of the 2020s. I think we will uh, increasingly start to see the adoption of uh, at least partially automated uh, heavy-duty trucks. Um, you know, I think along certain routes where you know where the technology can work reliably, uh, you know, depending on what the traffic conditions are like, I think we we will see you know at least you know what we call level four uh, automated trucks. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're capable of operating in certain conditions. You know, that might run. Uh, you know on-ramp to off-ramp, you know, do the, the highway portion of the trip um, without, without a, a human safety driver or a supervisor on board uh, the vehicle. And then, you know, as you get into, you know, as you get off the, the major highway and get towards the depot, then at that point you might have uh, a human driver step in and take over for that, that last mile as you get to a depot or a distribution center or a warehouse. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of different approaches that are being looked at. Uh, you know, remote driving teleoperation is, a, is another one, uh, another possibility. And, and that's teleoperation or remote operation is something that's also going to be part of all automated driving uh, capabilities, you know, whether you're talking about light-duty passenger vehicles or heavy-duty trucks, uh, you know, for those inevitable situations where the technology is not able to, to deal safely with the scenario or something goes wrong, um, you know, having somebody that can remotely step in and, and take control, you know, to get the vehicle to a, a safe place, um, you know, that's that's going to be a part of this mix as well. So there's going to be some new opportunities of different kinds of jobs uh, for people, but you know, there there's also the potential of replacing a lot of jobs, uh, you know, that are that are currently driving jobs, and you know, there's several million of those a year, several million of those just in the United States alone. And, and that's something I, I always think about a great deal, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of our talk here. We get excited about the technology. Um, we could probably do a better job across the whole tech sector of stepping back and saying, you know, what, 
what jobs in the coming 10 or 20 years are going to be impacted by this? But at the same time, and this gets back to what I said about that ripple effect, when I think about everything you were just describing, maybe a truck does that on-ramp to off-ramp portion autonomously, and you think, okay, well, that's neat, but you step back and you think, you know something? Let's say, let's say Sam is a manufacturing company. You run a manufacturer, and let's say I'm part of your supply chain, and you buy parts from me. And typically it takes a trucker three days to go from my facility to yours with your order. But if by 2028, 2029, as you're suggesting, maybe we're seeing partially autonomous 18-wheelers, well, maybe now I get, I get your parts to you in half that time or less, which means that you're making a commitment to your customer in a shorter amount of time than you would normally. I mean, these things open up a ripple effect that you think, oh, my God, <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is going they're, to have impact after impact after impact. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, with with any technology, you know, there are always unintended consequences. Um, there are always going to be scenarios that we don't think about, um, you know, going into it. And and as it goes along, as it develops, you know, we may think of, of new ways to utilize the technology that open up opportunities that we never conceived of before. I mean, you know, for just as a and as an example, you know, Uber and Lyft, you know, ride hailing services. Um, as we see them today, you know, it's, it's clearly, it's an evolution of the, the taxi services and, you know, going back, you know, 400 years to the original London hackney cabs, you know, it, it's an evolution of that kind of service, but it's something that we, we couldn't do and couldn't really conceive of doing prior to, you know, the, the mass adoption of smartphones. You know, it was only when that happened that all of a sudden this new opportunity came up. Uh, Which and I'm sure that when a smartphone started coming out, exactly. Right. Yeah. So the, I, I'm sure that as we start to get you know automated driving capabilities out there, it's going to open up uh, the opportunity for people to try new businesses, new 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 ideas that that leverage that technology in ways that we can't even conceive of right now. Um, you know, and it's it's undoubtedly also going to create problems and disruptions. Uh, along the way, just as every technology before it has. So um, that phrase, unintended consequences, I've actually used that phrase myself in any number of uh, talks and conversations with people in any kind of tech development. And, and sometimes people don't quite get what I'm talking about, and I say, think of it this way, and this ties into your comment earlier about regulatory requirements and so on. I say, first, we invented the automobile. Then we realized we need lines on the road, we need stop signs, we need traffic lights, but all, because of all these unintended accidents, you know, issues with pedestrians and so forth. But all of those regulatory requirements were reactive. They all came after the fact. So when you're talking about the drive to level five and whether it's the the family sedan SUV or whether it's an 18-wheeler a decade or more from now, is it possible to know today what sorts of legislative requirements we're going to need? And is it possible to be proactive about that? Uh, how, and it's, it's impossible to predict all unintended consequences. No one can do that. But do we have a sense of what, what we can do at least a little bit to, uh, to ensure as much public good as possible? 
Yeah, I, I think I think there are. You know, as you said, you know, we we can't anticipate all of the regulations that we're ultimately going to need, but I think there are some things that we can, you know, we can look at our history over the last 40 or so years, you know, of automotive regulation and and start and you know, it can give us some guidance of where we need to go proactively. Uh, you know, a, a, you know, since since uh, the late 1960s, you know, before that we didn't have a whole lot of of regulation, uh, safety regulation around vehicles. But since the, the late 1960s, you know, we've adopted everything from mandatory seat belts to standards uh, for, you know, crash safety, occupant protection, um, braking systems, lighting systems. Uh, you know, we've, we've got, you know, all kinds of mo- federal motor vehicle safety standards and, and other equivalent regulations around the world. And I think that you know, we're at a stage now where we, we need to proactively start looking at what are we going to need to do for automated vehicles. I think we need to establish some, um, some performance standards for these vehicles. And, you know, that's, you know, while the, the federal government isn't doing a whole lot right now, you know, they're, they're kind of taking a wait-and-see approach uh, for the mm-hmm. most part. Um, but there are other organizations that are starting to look at that, uh, you know, organizations like uh, SAE, the Society of Automotive Engineers, uh, you know, have, have formed some groups to start developing um, testing standards. You know, how, how do we even measure the performance of these vehicles? I mean, this, this is something we, we you know, had, had no idea, of, you know, how to evaluate whether an automated driving system is even working correctly. You know, is it recognizing you know, other road users correctly? Is it, is it categorizing them? You know, when the sensors see something, are they categorizing what, what that road user is, whether it's a vehicle or a pedestrian or a cyclist? Um, you know, under what conditions is it going to work? Um, you know, and so, you know, manufacturers uh, and organizations like SAE are starting to develop those metrics and those test procedures, um, you know, for how we do that. They haven't, you know, they're, they're not yet to the point of developing actual um, performance standards. requirements or, or standards. But, you know, before, before you can do that, you have to figure out, okay, how are we even going to measure it? And then we can figure out, okay, what what do we want to measure it to? So right. that is starting to happen, and this, you know, that is relatively unusual in in this kind of circumstance. We haven't really done this before uh, with other transportation technologies, and so I think that's a good sign. Uh, you know, and there there are other consortiums of of various companies uh, in this space, you know, in this space that are working, you know, to develop various standards. Uh, you, we've got. Um, you know, uh, organ- uh, organizations being led by companies like Intel and Mobileye, uh, you know, that are working to put together um, standards, you know, for for the on the software side. Uh, you know, we've got a variety of different things going on in that space. So um, I'm I'm glad to see that we you know we are actually trying to do this proactively for once. Sure. There are there are inevitably going to be some things that are going to be reactive. You know. As, as things go wrong, you know, that's going to lead to some reactive regulations, but at least we're, we're starting down the path of doing something proactively before we get these vehicles widely on the roads. The um, one, one pro- proactive, um, this is a bit of a stretch in terms of uh, this comment here, but last, uh, last September, my wife and I bought a new car, I wouldn't say the make and the model, but it was a, a 2016 certified pre-owned vehicle. And um, even though I, I did my homework on it, I 
knew what I was buying, at least I thought I did. Somehow I had missed that when I'm in the cruise control mode, which I use all the time, in fact, I do a lot of highway driving, the front-end sensor keeps me at a specific distance from the car in front of me. And right, it so you've took got me about a month. Control. Adaptive cruise control, which is, you know, it took me, like I said, it took me about a month to get fully comfortable with it. But uh, when, you, when you see your speedometer says you're going 60, or, or you see you're set it to go 65, but your speedometer is saying, no, you're going 58, you know, it took, <laughs> it took a little while to kind of get into the right mindset. Now that I've had the car since September and I do a lot of highway driving, I can honestly say I love that feature. I love it. I see a lot of ways in which it has limitations, and I, I have to interact quite a bit uh, when cars are coming in up the on-ramp from the side, and I know it's not seeing it and adjusting the speed, and I know all that's changing. Um, but something I've thought a, a quite a bit about is, and this, this surprised the heck out of me, when my wife called our insurance company to take off our old car and put on the new car, I said, uh, I said you know, our rates are going to go up. This is, a, this is a newer car. But our rates went down. I never expected that. And it went down because this car has more safety features, like the adaptive cruise control, um, than our old car did. Now, we had, the old car was a fine car. And I got thinking about that. I thought as, this autonomous, as these autonomous technologies spread, if this leads to fewer and fewer accidents, which means leads to fewer and fewer claims. And, thing, and, and I can see it in my own car. The, I get far better gas mileage and everything with the car driving itself than I can do. This should lead to lower costs in any number of ways, whether it's for the consumer or for a business. I mean, the potential economic benefit here, I, I would think, is enormous as we, as we give ourselves off to the autonomous vehicle. Yeah, and this is definitely one of the, the things that's driving the, the development and the adoption of this technology. You know, we have, you know, 37,000 people or so a year that die annually in the United States yeah. uh, on the roads, uh, 1.2 million globally. Um, you know, and while, you know, this is an activity that we do a lot of and, you know, actually, you know, in the context of how much we drive, you know, we actually have remarkably few people that die. You know, it's about a little more than uh, just over one fatality for every 100 million miles of driving. Um, you know, that's still a lot of people that die. Uh, and yes. so, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, manufacturers and suppliers are, are trying to find ways to reduce that. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, things like, you know, relatively simpler technologies like automatic emergency braking, adaptive cruise control, lane keeping systems, all of those are, are features that can help. Uh, you know, and as we get towards, um, you know, towards more highly automated driving, uh, you know, hopefully we will, we will see even more uh, progress in reducing fatalities and, and reducing crashes because there's a huge societal cost to car crashes. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, the medical cost of, of treating the, um, you know, the, the people that are injured, um, you know, the, 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 Personal costs, you know, when people die um, or are incapacitated, uh, the cost of business, the cost of infrastructure, you know, all of these things are, are huge costs uh, that we have the potential to significantly reduce um, 
in the, in the coming decades by adoption of this technology. But that's only going to happen if we do it right. You know, that's why it's, it's key that we actually, um, you know, do some proactive stuff, you know, on, you know, setting standards for the performance of this, this technology to make sure that we do it in a way that is actually going to be safe and reliable and that, um, you know, that, that we're not taking undue risks because, um, you know, I think if we, if we put technology out there that's half-baked, um, we actually run the risk of making the problem worse. Uh, so I, I think that there's, you know, we, we, have to, we have to think about all this stuff, think about as many of these things as we can and, and how we deploy this technology. So, so that, that really ties in beautifully. So you're, you're giving a talk on, um, you're giving a talk on the, the partnerships, the regulatory environment, the investment in the, that the transportation industry has had to make in this technology, but you're also part of a panel discussion called the timeline to getting to level five autonomy. Is it realistic? And you used a word just now that uh, is, is such an important word, but I'm not sure people say it as often as they should. You said, that's why we have to do it right. So I've heard, and uh, I don't mean to quote this as a statistic, I've heard the year 2025 as sort of a goal or a, a milestone for getting the true level five autonomy. That's only six years from now. To me, it seems a little close. Um, now you're on this panel discussion. How close are we to level five autonomy? And as the title of the discussion says, is it realistic? And for the benefit of our listeners, and Sam, please correct me if I'm wrong about this, level five is defined as a, a completely self-driving vehicle in any condition, anywhere. I believe that's the definition. Um, that's correct. If I'm so, wrong, please, yeah, you know, the, okay, that's the right definition. So where are we in relation yeah. to that level? Um, it, I, I, I would be extremely shocked if we hit it in 2025. I don't think that's going to be okay. the case. And, and I, you know, aside from Elon Musk, I don't think that there's anybody else that actually believes that, that's actually, that's actually working on this technology. Uh, increasingly over the last year or two, you know, we've seen a lot of people that have been involved in this for a long time that are saying, yeah, this is going to take, this is going to take a lot longer. You know, we're, we're looking at least the late 2020s, probably well into the 2030s before we get there. Okay. And it's entirely possible that we may never get to, you know, what we define as level five. You know, the distinction between level four and level five, you know, uh, versus the, the other lower levels is that the system is capable of operating without human intervention. It does not require any supervision. A human never has to take over control of the system at any time. You know, if something, if the situation, if the vehicle encounters a situation it cannot handle, you know, it's responsible for getting itself to a safe minimum risk condition. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and the, the distinction between four and five is that, a level four vehicle is designed to do that within a limited operating domain, which could be a limited geographic area. It could be a limited, um, you know, it could be limited by weather or, you know, any, any other constraints, you know, it's any arbitrary constraints. Level five eliminates those constraints. So it can do the same thing, but can do it anywhere, anytime. And, you know, I, you know, I, I don't think that we're going to see 
level five uh, before at least 2030. And it's, you know, and I've even heard John Kraftcheck, the CEO of Waymo, recently say that, you know, it's entirely possible that we may never actually get to that. We'll, we'll gradually expand the, the operating domain of level four, but we may never get to something that can do it everywhere. Everywhere. And I, I, I think it would be an important point to emphasize, let's just say that pure definition of level five is something we don't achieve. Well, level four is still pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's not like it's oh yeah, absolutely as a shortfall. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is still pretty yeah, there's, good. There's, yeah, there's there's huge benefits to be gained from from doing level four, especially in terms of dealing with problems like urban congestion. Uh, you know, there are so many. Um, you know, so you know, we've got so many big cities that are getting more and more crowded. Um, you know, and if we can if we can shift away from personal use vehicles that have to be parked, um, you know, that are underutilized most of the time towards shared autonomous services, um, you know, where you have fewer vehicles that are serving more people, you know, and they may even be accumulating more, more miles traveled, uh, but there's, there's huge benefit to be gained from that uh, if you can do it with fewer vehicles. Uh, you know, and, you know, in New York, for example, in Manhattan, you know, the average speed in Manhattan has dropped from, uh, 12 miles an hour, I believe, roughly in, in 2010, to about uh, less than eight miles per hour now because of the influx of all these human-driven ride-hailing vehicles um, into into the city, and so there's more congestion than ever. You know, it's estimated San Francisco congestion has increased by about 40 percent in the last 10 years. 40. And yeah, and if we can if we can take away um, some of that, you know, and and shift away, and you know, the other thing is um, parking. You know, today with personal use vehicles, you know, it's a lot of cities, you know, city centers, it's estimated that 25 to 30 percent of the land mass in urban centers is used for parking. Uh, so, you know, if you can eliminate most of that and, you know, take away the need for people to drive their own vehicles and, you know, make it uh, convenient and affordable, you know, for people to use multimodal uh, transportation systems, you know, that in- incorporate autonomous ride hailing, micromobility like scooters and bikes, and mass transit for, for heavily traveled routes, you, know, you could make this whole process much more efficient, reduce energy consumption, reduce uh, wasted land mass, and make some of that land available for other uses like you know, more affordable housing, uh, you know, which right. is a, a big problem in, in, in city centers, um, you know, and, and other, case, other use cases then, you know, there's, there's huge benefits to be gained, even if, you know, if your autonomous vehicles are only able to operate at, you know, 25 miles an hour in, in urban areas, and they can't operate in rural areas. That's fine. You've still made a huge step forward in that case. And so I think we need to, you know, we don't, you know, we don't necessarily need to have it all right away, you know, I think, you know, incremental steps that, that give us benefits, I think there's, you know, that, that's something to, to celebrate. The, um, I, I, honestly, Sam, I could talk uh, another couple hours with you about this. Um, we do want to be respectful um, of your time constraints, but something I, I think is important to sort of sum it up with, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the people at Informa, uh, this, the idea for this conference actually started three years ago, uh, and this is the first of its kind. For those of you who are listening, this is absolutely a must-attend event for any engineers, designers, or even just people 
who want to see where we are with the uh, autonomous vehicle driving technology. This event is a first of its kind, as we said, Santa Clara Drive World Conference and Expo. Sam, if someone attends all three days, what should they, what should they walk out thinking? What, should be, what do you think the, their big takeaway impression should be? Uh, I think that, you know, the, the recognition that, you know, there's still a lot of challenges to be solved, uh, but, you know, there's also a lot of progress being made. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, making the, making, you know, conferences like this are always a great opportunity to make connections, you know, to hear what other people at other companies are doing, what they're learning, and to, to make connections that can help you along your own, you know, along your own path down, you know, to develop this technology. And it's a, it's a great opportunity to learn, um, you know, yes. for, for everybody that attends. I mean, I, I always learn, you know, come away from conferences, you know, having learned more than what I knew going in. And, you know, that's, that's a great thing. You know, I think that's, that's extremely valuable. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if you and I have something in common there. I attend conferences throughout the year as well, and you think, oh, I've got to drive to the airport. I've got to wait to get on my flight. Then I've got to fly there, get to my hotel. Then I can get to the conference. But once you're at the conference, you're like, oh, there's a lot of good stuff here. <laughs> so it's, for yeah. me, it's always sort of once I get there, I'm like, yeah, I'm really glad I, uh, I organized this trip and, and got out here. Um, so, Sam, thank you very much for sharing all of your insights and your expertise. This has been extremely eye-opening. For the benefit of our listeners, if you have any interest in autonomous vehicles, as I said a few minutes ago, the Drive World Conference and Expo is a first of its kind. It's taking place in Santa Clara, California, at the Convention Center, August 27th through 29th, and Sam's Talks, Partnerships will be more important than ever for automated driving. That will take place Wednesday, August 28th at 4.15. And then the following morning, Sam is part of the panel discussion, the timeline to getting to level five autonomy. Is it realistic? And that will be taking place at 11.15. Sam, thank you very much for all your time and expertise this morning. And have a great couple of talks there at the Drive World Conference and Expo. Thanks, Jack. It was great talking with you. You too.